What's up, Don Nation? My name is Wyatt Troy. I make music as Come Nightfall, and I want to welcome you to this week's episode of Behind the Daw, where we interview music producers, artists, music industry experts, singers, songwriters, sound designers, and literally everyone else in between on an emotional, philosophical, artistic, branding, marketing, and overall music business basis. This is a companion podcast to our YouTube series, In the Daw, where we invite music producers to come and dissect their songs in real time. Recently, we've had people like Pixel Terror, Exod, Nerco, Biometrics, Delta Heavy, Cashmere, AU5, Kiro, and a bunch of others. So if you're interested in that, go ahead and check that out on the Daw Nation YouTube channel. But you can also listen to a podcast version of those episodes here on the podcast. Those are the point five episodes. All right, Daw Nation, we got all that out of the way. Now, who are we interviewing this week? We were blessed to be able to interview Dennis Koyu. Now, who is that? Why is he important? Why should you listen to him? The reason why is this. He literally has collaborations with some of the biggest people in the music industry. People like Alesso, Nicky Romero, Galantis, Fedele Grand. He also has official remixes for people like the Chainsmokers, Zed, Mike Snow, and David Guetta. And right now, like literally right now, he has 1.5 million monthly listeners on Spotify. So yes, this dude is completely worth listening to. And I can promise that the content in this episode is going to be amazingly helpful. But Donation, what are you going to learn today? What are you going to walk away with? How is this episode going to benefit you and your music? I'll tell you exactly how. We are going to talk about what it's like going from playing in front of 5,000 people to 20,000 people and not letting fear consume you. We're also going to talk about how preparation is the worst enemy for stress. We're also going to talk about the number one strategy that helped propel Dennis Koyu's career forward. We're also going to talk about the best and worst tactics to meeting and working with people that are much bigger than you. And finally, we are going to talk about what the top of the music industry is really like. And Dennis is a very valid candidate to tell us about that. So Donation, I hope you are freaking pumped for this week's episode, which by the way, this episode is sponsored by the school base, but we're going to talk about that later on. Don't worry, we're going to get you through all the interview first. So Donation, Without further ado, let's get into this week's episode and go behind the DAW with Dennis Koyu. I want to welcome everyone to this week of Behind the DAW. We're honored, we're blessed, we have Dennis Koyu. Let's have you say what's up to DAW Nation and tell us something extremely embarrassing about yourself. Hey, what's up, Donation? So let's start off with something embarrassing about myself. One thing that comes to my mind that's kind of embarrassing is when I was like five or six years old or seven years old, maybe even two, I was a huge fan of David Hasselhoff. So, uh, <laughs> you know, not just him as an actor, because I was watching like this series, this TV show, Knight Rider a lot. Maybe you know that one, Knight Rider. You know, I was a huge fan of that, but I was also, and this is very gets really embarrassing i was also a fan of his music so <laughs> that's like where i started with my musical taste david hasselhoff <laughs> yeah that that is some juicy information <laughs> <laughs> it is <laughs> do you still listen to him or is that kind of because i think i stopped when i was maybe nine years old that's where you know where where i, where I started to find better music i believe your musical tastes are much much i hope much so. better now i hope so <laughs> <laughs> well dude that was great and we're honored to have you and we're I'm, I'm grateful that we could start off with that because when we when we get the embarrassing stuff out of the way, we kind of address the the elephant in the room and it kind of just yeah. breaks all the ice, all <laughs> the awkward ice that we have. And first question that I have is, 
Man, you've been DJing for 10 plus 15 years? How, how long have you been DJing for? Like 10 years now. Professionally, I would say 10 years. Yeah. I started early, of course, but professionally 10 years. If we look at like, you know, you DJing for the last 10 years, I'm sure like when you first started, it was so exciting and, and new and, and whatnot. But man, you've been doing it for 10 years. Are you still intrigued with DJing as a whole or is it kind of boring now? Um, no, it's definitely not boring. For sure not. Um, I'm definitely still very intrigued. And the thing maybe is, maybe when I started like 10 years ago, I would want to do any kind of show and travel anywhere just to play the show, just to travel, just for the experience, because everything was new. And it's, it's a very different experience in the beginning. While a couple of years later, when you are on a, I would say, more professional level, and when you've done more things already, then you don't want to play every show anymore just to play the, sh just to play the show. I, I check the booking or the booking requests a bit more in detail these days, and then I see if it's really worth it to travel that far to you know, another continent, maybe to, to Asia or South America or somewhere. And then if I feel like the show is going to be great, and it's going to be good for my profile and stuff like this, then I will do it. It. And also, if I can build a couple of shows around it, not just go for one show and come back home, you know, so I would say, yeah, the standards are maybe a bit higher. And it's not like that. It doesn't feel like I want to just go to play a show anymore. So that's different. But uh, when I feel like, okay, this is going to be a great show, then I'll, of course, I'm super excited and stoked still to play for sure. Do you feel like you still are in, you're in love with the process of DJing? Like you love getting up on stage and doing the DJ thing. Do you still love that just as much as when you started? I absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. As soon as I have a crowd in front of me that I feel like is excited too to see me, then that will, I don't think that is that's something that will ever stop like you know the excitement that you get the feedback that you get from a crowd that's just something it never gets old that's for sure and i still even get nervous before a show when there's good energy in the room when i can feel it then it's still it's pretty much almost the same as the first day when i started um the only thing that you know what what can suck is it happens really but it happens when you go to a show and then there's a random crowd that doesn't really care about whoever is playing that night you know and and that's something that I'll that sucks of course and and but it happens rarely and then if it happens then you got to deal with it when was a djing experience that you had when you were like overly anxious overly scared overly stressed out what has that ever happened to you before oh for sure yeah man for sure i can definitely tell you i still remember very well what was my first big show like a real big show you know that was in winter 2011 which was the year when my career really took off because i just released this this kind of like a club hit song called Tong that came out um, in the summer in 2011 and anything before that were just small club shows that I played for like 500 people maybe you know in, in just here around Germany and surrounding countries but nothing crazy and then starting in winter 2011 that's when I started to play the big shows and the first big one was in Berlin in a, in a stadium arena with Tiesto together so it was Tiesto's show and I played right before him and it was sold out and it was a massive arena you know it was maybe some somewhere between 15 to 20,000 people and that was a huge huge jump because everything be that I played before was like I said like 500 people maybe you know not nothing crazy at all so that was the first time there was a huge jump into the cold water just like this and I was so anxious and so scared and I, I mean I don't want to say it was bad because it was I mean I still have amazing memories of it yeah I was really scared and then hold on just one second there <laughs> my wife she was yelling at me just barely <laughs> 
because there's something melting in the dishwasher. Had to be the man and go check oh, it out. Of course, the uh, beauties are calling. Okay, so what you were talking about was that you, uh, so you were super nervous because it was like it. You went from playing like 500 people to like 20,000. Yes, yeah, and in, in, in an arena, you know, like this whole setup and this whole, it's like super overwhelming. That's something that you you just gotta learn and get adjusted to to you know to learn how to deal with this sort of uh, I, I guess adrenaline level and this whole setup. It's something that takes a while to get used to. In that instance, when you were, you know, you're going to be performing with Tiesto, and you're super nervous, blood was running cold, your adrenal glands were completely draining. So in that instance, how did you kind of pull it all together? How did you kind of, oh crap, I, I, how do I do, you know what I mean? Like, how do you, Yeah. how do you still do it? Well, luckily I was prepared and, and I did, you know, I did uh, work on my set. I think I remember that I did have pretty cool mashups and edits and I, I, you know, on the, on the music side, I, f I felt safe. So that wasn't really the issue, but it's still like that feeling that you have this huge crowd in front of you. And of course, you know, you, you, I mean, there's so many factors that, that make you nervous and well, the way to deal with it is just to focus on just, I guess, you know, the CDJs and what you're doing not so much like i didn't i didn't do any sort of interaction with the crowd at that point you know, it was definitely for that. It was too early to try and do anything like even not like touch the mic or stuff like this, just like play my set and that's it. And then, and then that, that will be good. You know, this is how I would, <laughs> how I was, I was dealing with, with stuff like, uh, with shows like this in the beginning. So yeah. And then it's just, I try to think about, think of it as like, feel about it the way how it would be if it was just 500 people in front of me, like try to put your head into that mind state and then just play your show. I think I did a good job and it was a, it was a good set. And then that's where you get, you know, you you feel safer next time. What I pulled away from that was the greatest enemy to stress is not only preparation, but focus. And that seems very cliche. You know, we've heard that many, many times, but it's true. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If you're stressed about something, the greatest thing that you can do for it is to prepare for it. I mean, can we can we agree with that? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I agree. Nothing is as bad as a super stressful situation. You have no idea what you're going to do. You have no idea what you're going to say. You have no idea how to go about it. And then you're in the situation you're like, oh, crap, this is even worse than I thought because yeah. I didn't prepare. Yeah. Exactly. This is where it usually ends up in some sort of disaster. So <laughs> you, you don't want that to happen. And um, for me, when it's big shows, then I, I always prepare my set and my music and my, my edits and everything. But then usually how it ends up is that I on the fly change up everything and play a comp sometimes a completely different set than what I what I planned. Sometimes just like a bit different, but it never ends up the way you prepare it and you plan it. But it's just about your mind state and that you feel safe and secure and you go in there and you know, okay, you're going to kill it and going to be great and fine. And then that just calms your mind. What has been like the most embarrassing DJ story you've ever had? I'm not sure if I ever told this on any interview before. So maybe this is the first time, but I remember this now and it's like the most embarrassing thing that ever happened to me. So hit me. Okay. So get ready. In It was December also 2011. So also in my very uh, beginning, I played it, um, a US tour together with Fede Legrand. Yeah. So we had this crazy tour, 12 shows in 14 days or something and it was my first US tour and my second time ever going to the States alright so I was super stoked and, and really excited for this whole thing we had a friend of mine and also Fetty's friend so it was like the three of us and usually we partied at, at the shows playing this one show it was in Orlando and at that show so I played my set first before Fetty I did the warm up and then when I was done and Fetty was playing this promoter guy and Fetty and, and also some other friends 
sense. They kept feeding me the Jaeger shots like one after the other. And then when Fetty was done, he thought it was a good idea to put me back on the decks and, you know, have me like play the closing. But I was destroyed and, and, and couldn't walk anymore. And, and But whatever, he thought it would be a good idea. So I was back on the deck and maybe for five to 10 minutes, <laughs> it went okay. But then what happened was Fetty went to the bar, I think, or he was just going somewhere for like two, three minutes. And in that moment, you know, the CDJ has this button, this ref button, this reverse button, right? Where you put the track on reverse. And I was mixing in <laughs> the next song on this on the second CDJ and I hit the reverse button and I didn't even notice it. I was on another planet. And so I was playing this track on reverse and mixing it in on reverse without even noticing. And Fetty was somewhere else at the bar or whatever. And then he came back. It took like a minute at least. And I was <laughs> playing the track on reverse the whole time without even noticing. So that was by far, by far the most embarrassing thing ever. Man, I even got a second embarrassing story out of you. That was good. <laughs> on the on the same concept as DJing, you know, you you were placed on the, the DJ Mag Top 100 DJs of the Year. Was that for 2019 or 2018? 2018. 2018, okay. So is, is 2019, I guess 2019 is not even out yet. Right? No, that's coming. Uh, those results are coming in October this year. It's always end gotcha. of October. Yeah. Gotcha. Are you going to be on that list too? Um, I don't know. <laughs> I hope so. Of course you are. Maybe. Stop. <laughs> <laughs> got to see. It always depends on how much effort you put in and you got to campaign for it and, and advertise it, you know, and then of course work hard. You got to put out a lot of music, just work hard the whole year. And then that's kind of like the reward in the end. Ever since then, you know, you've been in the industry a long time and 2018 was the first year that you got on the list, right? Yeah, correct. That's actually correct yeah so, so with you being on that list in 2018 have you noticed is there a noticeable difference since you've been on there like if you had more opportunities if people respected you more has there has there been any type of noticeable difference in your life since you've been on there yeah honestly the difference is uh it's nothing crazy uh honestly like i can confidently say the one territory where you really feel a noticeable difference is some areas in asia mostly china china is one country that looks on this list heavily, which is it has honestly just to do with um, with the language mostly because they can't read English and they can't understand English. So China is a market that's you know they're just living in their own world in a way. And uh, for them, the DJ Mac Top 100 list is a very important benchmark. So they really rely on it and they look heavily on it. And then the promoters, especially they they will book shows yeah according to that list. So that's where I really felt a difference because I got. Um, yeah, I just got to play uh, more shows in China starting end of last year. So that was great. Honestly, it doesn't really make a big difference. I don't feel like anyone respects me more or less because of that list. And I personally also don't really, I don't really value it that much. You know, it's really cool to be on it. And I'm, I'm really grateful for all people who voted for me. And that's, you know, that's super amazing. It's not just like, it's not something where that I, that I take as a basis to compare my performance with anyone else who is on the list or not on the list. What has been something that once that thing has happened, it kind of propelled your career forward? Once this thing happened, all of a sudden all the opportunities came in, like a bunch of opportunities came in and you were able to do all these things. You know what I mean? What is something like that? Yeah, sure. You mean in the independent from the uh, uh, DJ Mac, right? You mean just in general? R right. Yeah, yeah. Just throughout your whole career. For me, this was always bound to to music, to my releases. Honestly, that's where, where I always felt, okay, here I did some something successful release that just good things happen from it. So I think one thing that really helps are uh, collabs with
with bigger artists. That's what helped me many times where I could feel afterwards, okay, now my profile has been growing from this. Noticeable difference for me was, first one was definitely with Federle Grand, still like, you know, what I was just talking about. Uh, in 2011, I was working, and 2012 too, I was working a lot with Fede and we also put out music together. That definitely helped my career and my, my profile. And then I did a couple of things with Alesso together, which also helped a lot. This is just something you feel it. You know, you, you can tell like after something like this, you can tell that um, your social media is growing. You, you get more response. You, got, you get more feedback. You just get more traffic. You get new fans. Yeah, releases in general and, and big collaborations. That is beautiful. And that's something that I always suggest to our listeners is that you should always be trying to work with someone, quote unquote, above you. Always. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. and even, I mean, you should always be working with other people in general. And you do need that variety of people that are smaller than you, people that are the same size as you, people that are bigger than you. But with working with people that are bigger than you, it's you're incorporating the concept of fame by association, right? Can we agree with of that? Course. Yes, of course. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, like for example, honestly, I can say right now, you have never heard any of my music, but because I was on that AU5 episode of In The Da, you know who I am, right? Exactly, yeah, it's true. Yes, of course. Fame by association. Same concept. Recently, the last episode, by the time this episode comes out, it wouldn't be the last episode, but as of recording this episode, the last episode that we just put out on In The Da was with Kashmir. And I cannot tell you the fame by association that's coming with that. I can only imagine. Yeah, of course, that must be crazy. But no, I like that. Yeah, fame by association, working with people that are bigger than you. So that actually leads to another question. If people are working in the industry and they are diligent and they are consistent and they are progressing, eventually they're going to work with people bigger than them or they're going to meet people that are bigger than them. I know people can't see me, but whenever I say bigger, I'm I'm using air quotes, right? Quote unquote, bigger. When that happens, uh, it's very hard not to fanboy. It's very hard not to get super excited when around people, you know what I mean? Like I remember when we did the thing with Kashmir and it was like, this is freaking Kashmir. And even, you know, like even doing this with you, like I'm a little bit more, you know, uh, seasoned at this point, you know, you're you're definitely a lot bigger than I am, but I'm a little bit more seasoned. And so I kind of know how to act, but (laughs) for you, you know, obviously like you've, you've worked with some of the top people in the industry. So if you're, if you were to give advice to a producer right now that isn't working with bigger people, but is going to work with bigger people in the future, what is some advice you can give to them so that they, they don't come off as fanboy, that they need to come off as professional, work worthy? You know what I mean? What is some advice on that point? It's two very different questions if you're talking about working with a bigger artist or meeting and, and talking to a bigger artist at, let's say, backstage at a venue, at a show, you know? So let's, let's start with that first one. I like that first one, then we'll move to the second one. So yeah, if they just meet them, if they just, you know, they become acquainted with them. When it comes to that, I think it's important to, well, first of all, not fanboy. That's just annoying, especially if you're just praising, you know, that person's work and just like just fanboying. That's as an artist, you just, that's not something, I mean, it's nice to say maybe one or two things, but then it's, that's cool, you know, because it just gets annoying. You don't want to hear, you don't need to hear all these things. And then it's kind of, it just gets awkward in a way. Uh, I I definitely would would not recommend to do that. Uh, But what's good to do, I think, is show that that artist show him or her that you know what what that person is about 
you know, that you know their work and that you, you know, that's not, not that it's not a ran random thing, that it's, it's not just that you're talking to that person because you've heard or you know that that's a big artist, but you actually have no idea what that person is doing. So I think it's important to make it personal and show that person that you are really, you just know who you're talking to and, but do it in a cool way, not in a fanboying way, if that makes any sense. Be cool and, and with both feet on your ground, try to not come off too nervous and, and I know it's difficult though. Easier said than done. Yeah, the most important thing really is not to like fanboy like crazy. That's really the main thing, honestly. I think there's an easy, there are some easy ways how to uh, connect to the to the artist. If let's say you meet him at a, a backstage at a uh, at a show, I would just maybe you hopefully listen to the to the set of the artist if it's after the the show. Then I would say something about the set quickly, you know, and and maybe show that artist in a way that you actually listen to the set. Something like this, and then yeah, make it personal and not just. What's the worst thing you could do is possibly I think is just hitting him up about your own music and then talking about yourself from the start. You know, that's something that's also that also can get a bit annoying if you just want to give him your USB stick with your demos. That's like because you always got to keep in mind that's something that every dude tries to do um, at shows wherever you go backstage. That is the worst thing. Yeah. The worst thing you can do. Now, how many USB sticks have you been handed in your life? I don't know, man. I, I, I must be in the hundreds for sure. In the hundreds. You can open up a USB store at this point, right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I could. Yeah. The majority I never kept. This is actually a very good point. I'm actually really, really stoked you brought it up because yes, that strategy of when you meet someone and you instantly ask something of them, you know, which is, hey, can you listen to my demos? I'm telling you guys this, not only as a human being, but as a marketer, worst decision you could ever make. We've all heard like yeah. the stories oh like that's how x person blew up like i think that's how said the sky got his thing going is that like he he handed his usb stick to seven lions or something of that yeah, fashion yeah. but i know that there's still success stories with that but i'm telling you the odds that it's going to work and that it's going to keep working literally next to zero yeah so, like it's totally. it's garbage <laughs> so i want to swing back around because i'm going to come back to this concept i want to swing back around so how you're saying like if you meet them backstage and it's okay to acknowledge their work that you say they that you love their work and all that kind of stuff it is it's nice to be admired it's creepy to be obsessed over yes, exactly. yeah so like if, yeah. if you and i we met backstage i'm like dude I, you know i really enjoy your work i've been listening to it for years so i just want to say thank you man like you you make some really good music to me that is admirable like you're showing that like yes you, you they're good you like what they're going right if i said that to you would you be creeped out no 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 for sure not no that's that's totally fine but if I came up to you and was like, oh my gosh, I've been listening to you for a decade. I have all of your pictures posted on my wall in my room. You know what I mean? Like I have a tattoo of you on my knee. Like it's creepy, right? Like yeah. that's where it's like. Yeah, this this sort of stuff, like a tattoo and, and things that uh, never happened to me yet. But that was that would for sure be very creepy. And it's important to note that like if you if you want to work with someone, this is creepy. I mean, if you're a fan, I mean, sure. I mean, there's, there's some gray area there, right? There's kind of like you kind of expect fans to be. Be like that in a way right oh, you kind of, of course, expect yeah. them Absolutely. to go no, over the sure. edge yeah of course if you're just um, you know if you're just a fan or a literal fan and you just want to talk to that 
artist as a fan that's that's cool that's that's you know that's fine but um if you want to be seen as a professional or semi-professional coming up artist, then this is not how you should behave. How you were saying, swinging back around to, I guess, swinging back forward in a way, um, to like the handing off the USB stick and all that kind of stuff. The way that that I have consistently been able to grow relationships in the music industry, like that's how like within a year and a half, I've been able to kind of climb the ladder and all of a sudden I'm doing interviews with people like you and Kashmir and Pegboard Nerds and people, you know, Matoma, people that I had no idea that I could even reach. But the way that I've been able to do that is by bringing value to the people is, you know, whoever I meet, I always bring value to them and I never ask anything of them until after I brought the value. So even with reaching out to you and doing this episode, there's still value in it for you, correct? Yeah, for sure. Else I wouldn't be doing it. Yeah, exactly. You know, you still like you, you get exposed to my audience and you get content for you that you can give out to your audience, which is extremely valuable. And, you know, like I'm going to give you a social media consultation here in a second, which is extremely valuable. And so on and so forth, right? It's 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 based exactly, on value. Yeah, yeah. So we need to bring value to people. So has there ever been someone smaller than you that you have met and they have brought extraordinary value to you? It's like, I have no idea who you are. I've never listened to your music, but the value that you're bringing to me, okay, now I know that you're worth keeping around. You know, has that, has that ever happened to you before? You mean like backstage at shows like this, what we were talking, like that's an... Sure, yeah, let's, or backstage or just in general, you know, I, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm a say just in general yeah in general too um uh, of course people have hit me up and sent me let's say a soundcloud link or something and then i would have a listen and then it was surprisingly good so and then i would actually keep in contact with that person and and then sometimes you know things might grow from this um that has happened for sure so what uh, and, and what's important for for those things in case you know when when it's about let's say soundcloud links uh, you want to make it quick you know when when sometimes i i check my dms on instagram for example all the time and people send me uh, their soundcloud links all the time and everyone has some time um, at some point in the day to check a couple of links and have a listen right so but you want to you don't want to like send a huge introduction about yourself and what you've been up to the past 10 years and your whole life story and then i got to scroll down to that link and then uh, there's like 10 songs in a playlist on SoundCloud. You know, this is where that's not happening. The quick things is where uh, where it happens and then like I said, I've, I've had occasions where then people sent me stuff that were actually exciting to listen to. In, in, in terms of like bringing something to the table or to that to that level. I can, I can think of something really quick or maybe an experience that they could be like that. So like if we're if we're riding the, the same train where it's like, you know, like someone's sending you a, uh, a SoundCloud link to me, like something that would bring a value to the person that you're saying it to would be like, you know, it'd be a quick message. Be like, Hey man, I just want you to know, like I am inspired by you. And actually like this song was heavily inspired by X song that you wrote. And I just, you know, I'm not expecting anything from it, but I just want you to know that like, you know, you, you inspired me and, and from your song, this, this came from it. You know what I mean? Like in that, I mean, how, how would that be? This is actually true. Yeah, absolutely. If I, if that's what I, what I, what I read in a, in a message and then I see that person really means it though you can easily tell because then usually this person would actually quote 
a couple of your songs that were inspiring to them, you know, and then this is where this is just, this is how the person builds a connection to you. This is what I was trying to explain before. And then I would for sure always respond to a person like this and, and also listen to the demo, try to give something back. I can, ex I can tell you one example of, I have this one, it's like one of my biggest fans um, from this, this, this kid from Miami um, who is, who has always, he has been to any show I, I, I played in, in Miami or around Miami. Sometimes he would travel to New York and come there if I played a show there and other places and even named his dog Koyu. <laughs> yeah, he did. And so he's like, you know, this huge fan. And, but the fact that he would come to every show that I play is already something that's huge. You know, it's like, uh, you, this is where I, you know, I, I, I followed him back on, on, on Instagram and anytime he would message me, I would message him back. And he actually tries to make music too. It's not that great yet, but he's been trying for a while and I always give him feedback. And, and, you know, this is like, that's a super personal co uh, connection there. And, and, and that's, you know, that's great then. That's amazing, dude. I, I absolutely love that. And this is a great conversation, especially for people, you know, they, it sucks because even me who is why wildly smaller than you but even me i still get messages all the time yeah and the messages consist of hey i'm putting out this release any feedback or sharing would be great that is a terrible way terrible, terrible yeah terrible because you way. know that it's a mass text they just copy and paste it directly send it to all their contacts that's kind of the equivalent. I'd, you probably get this in Germany. Maybe you don't, but that's kind of the equivalent of like when you get something in the mail and it's like to our valued customer. And it like, it's like, dude, come on. Like this is the most slap in the face personal thing ever. You know what I mean? Yeah, of course. We get that in Germany too. Yeah. But that goes straight in the trash can. Yeah, exactly. Straight. In the, it doesn't matter how good the value is, how good the offer is. When you, when you, when you take away the personalness of it all, it actually goes back to human psychology and, and kind of like needs as a human to be a part of a tribe and feel loved. But when you, when you don't meet that, it doesn't matter. It just goes straight in the trash, right? Can we agree on that? Yeah, exactly. Because it kind of feels like you're being used in a way that's like, you know, that's that, that weird aftertaste to it. So, and then you, yeah, you're not into it. You have worked with some of the biggest names in the industry and you have support from some of the biggest names in the industry. I mean, if you, I mean, you know your credentials better than anyone. So like, who are some of the biggest people that you've worked with or that have supported you in the industry? Um, so that I've worked with, the biggest ones I can say uh, were, unless so, Nikki Romero, Dimitri Vegas and Like Mike, Federle Gran, Galantis. I did a remix with them together, I guess. I, Dirty South as well. I think those were it for in terms of collaborations and working with people. Um, in terms of support, I, would, I, I think pretty much all of the big guys in the EDM scene have supported me and my music. So yeah, just really pretty much everyone. So yes, so David Guetta, Calvin Harris, Swedish House Mafia, and Martin Garrix, and so on. I don't think that in the EDM scene, probably there's not a big name. You, I can say without, without a shadow of a doubt that you, you are a valid candidate to tell us what the top is actually like. And so let me ask you that, like, what is the top of the, of the EDM industry? What is it actually like? Is it fun? Is it stressful? Is it, you know, like what, as much deep detail as you care to share, what is it actually like? It's very competitive. First of all, that's for sure. You know, this is what I always see with, with everyone at the top, these people work. And even if a lot of those maybe, yeah, I can say this, a lot of the guys um, at the top there, they don't even make their own music. Um, totally. But 
That's def- definitely not a secret. So. Yeah, it's not a secret. You know, everyone pretty much knows this, but still that doesn't mean much because they really work so hard on so many things at the same time to keep their career going. And I come like when it comes to this topic, even though maybe we're drifting off in a little bit, but just to say one thing, I kind of like see it like if you, if you were looking at Steve, uh, Steve Jobs, you know, and, and how he handled Apple and, and, you know, then, then, he wasn't actually creating things, you know, he wasn't the one who was sitting down and like creating the technology for the iPhone or whatever. He just gathered the people um, and, and he was leading the people to, to yeah, create this and, and, an entire empire, basically. Yeah? And in a way, this is how every big business works and um, every top DJ is running a massive business. And this is what I see. It's very competitive and, and um, it's very fast also. And it's like a really tight schedule all the time. These guys have so many things on their minds at the same time. This is also a thing that I, that I always notice when I, when I speak, you know, just have conversations with these, with these guys is you can tell that their attention span is short because their mind is drifting off to the next big thing that they have to handle, you know, and it's just, I think this is how I can try to summarize it in a way. You bring up a concept that I've always kind of struggled with as far as, you know, as far as the top. And what that is, is, you know, if if they are as big as they are and, you know, if they've had as much success as they've had in theory, because if we look at any other industry in the world, in theory, once someone gets to like the top ish area, in theory, you should be able to stop working as hard. You should be able to work less and kind of pan off a lot of the other work and and kind of enjoy life more. But it kind of seems like the higher you get, the harder you have to work. Why is that? Yeah, I think it is this way. It really is this way. And there are many reasons for it. First of all, when you're at the top, you um, you have to work very hard to maintain that position. And that's really, I think the longer you are in the business, the more difficult that becomes. And why is that? That's because people get tired quickly of just of a name, of a face, of an artist, you know, and this is, that's the sad truth of the industry, but that's how it is. And in order to keep being interesting to people, you have to kind of like reinvent yourself every time. And that becomes, I think that becomes more difficult. The, yeah, the, the higher you are in the, in, in, in the ranking and uh, the longer you are in the, in the business. Kind of from what I'm seeing and from the people that I've talked to as well. So like on episode, I believe it was 26 or 25 of Behind the Daw. So, you know, like 20 plus episodes ago, um, I interviewed Seamless. Do you know Seamless from his YouTube channel? Cool. Perfect. Perfect. So yeah, when I was talking to him, he said one of the hardest things he realized about the music industry is how much, now in his opinion, I, I don't know if I entirely share this opinion, but he said when he realized how much the top sucks for people, how hard they have to work. And, you know, like all the energy that they have to put in and not the big payout that comes from it. You know what I mean? How they're constantly stressed about staying relevant and so on and so forth. Right. From my opinion, from what I can see, at least it's kind of hard to say. But if we if we had a scale from zero to ten, zero is, you know, someone who has absolutely no idea what they're doing in the music industry. They don't have any following of any releases. They're like literally the brand newest of the brand news. And then we look at ten on that scale and 10 would be someone like Martin Garrix or the chain smokers or, you know, you know, just the top of the top of the top. Right. From my understanding is that if we were to look at the exact middle of it, so like five, number five, to me, that would be someone like AU5 and
And funny enough, 85, yeah. And then someone, and then, you know, I would assume that you would be seven, I don't know, maybe like it's like a seven, 7.5, eight. I mean, would you agree with that? Yeah, I guess. Six, 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 maybe. Gotcha. I don't know. Maybe, yep. So my assumption is that between like four and six, maybe four and seven around that area, to me, that seems like the sweet spot because that's where you're doing well, you're living off your music, you're progressing, you're doing all that kind of stuff, but you don't have to deal with all of the problems that comes with eight, nine, and 10. Can we agree with that? Mm, not sure, to be honest. Okay, okay, tell me why. Because I think that every artist struggles with kind of like similar issues just on their own level. This is how, how I kind of see it. So I'm in a very competitive environment too, just in my ranking range, you know what I mean? So, and I'm also fighting all the time to make sure that I stay relevant and my music stays relevant and that I still reach out to a good fan base and so on. So it's just all like, com- if you com- compare it to the number 10, then this is like just on a smaller scale, but you know, it's not stress-free at all and it's not like um the career is just like like running by itself like it's not like that i wouldn't i wouldn't i wouldn't say that i actually just remember what i wanted to say also before um that you know that's more related to when you when you're coming close to the number 10 like the top uh to the top league but it also applies to the like five to to seven range okay so what i want to wanted to say was the more successful you become as an artist the more responsibilities you have and this is where uh, the stress factor also comes in. I think that's something that maybe a lot of people, they don't really get to see. The one thing you always want to make sure as an artist is that you are the leader of your own business. And you will have the more successful you are, the more people will come to that want to like have a piece of the cake. You know, and they want to like, they will try to intervene in ways and maybe, you know, they will try to like test you in ways and then see if they can in ways like start to take over control. And this is where things become tricky and dangerous because you as an artist, you always got to be just the head of your own business and you got all the people that are working for you. And that's really important. And that's where things just become, yeah, just more and more stressful the higher you are because you have more and more responsibilities. Just think about it. When you are a top A AA DJ and you're playing shows for like $200,000, $300,000, you know, this is just think about it. Just like if you really think it through, just think about what responsibility that is. And then all everything that surrounds a show like this that has a budget of three hundred thousand to five hundred thousand dollars or something, you know, there's like there there are so many things that go into it, production wise and so on. And you gotta be in control of everything. So the more you grow as an artist, the more responsibilities you have, and your business just grows, and everything becomes like you know, it just all goes to a bigger scale, and you still need to be able to control everything. And I think that is yeah where the stress comes in you know you have shed so much knowledge on us throughout this this interview and i i am extremely grateful for that and i feel like we're at a good point now where if you want now i can share i can shed the the knowledge on it for you if that's okay yeah, should we sure. move into our social yeah. media thing yeah of course of course all right dude so moving into the social media consultation point of this interview so what is on your mind with social media? Like if you if you could have one question answered, it's like, oh, this one question with social media that would help me out with my business more than anything, what would be that question? I would ask in, in 2019, what do you think is the most 
uh, one of the most important aspects for just uh, social media growth? And also, how do you compare the social media platforms like Facebook versus Instagram and, and Twitter in 2019? Like, how do you, you know? That's funny you ask that. Um, preparing preparing for this interview, I was listening to your old interviews and I found one from 2011 and they asked, um, what was like your, your favorite social media or your like most relevant social media to connect with you? And you said Facebook. And it was kind of like, it was a, it was a knife to the heart of like, to, to a social media marketer like me, because I look back, I'm like, man, those are the days. Like, yeah. what is the most important platform? And what I would say is it is a two-part question and, or sorry, a two-part answer. And the reason is this, is because the most important platform, by the time that someone's listening to this, if they're listening to this podcast, you know, a year later, two years later, even a couple months later, the advice given in this podcast may expire. And that is that is the cold, hard, sad truth about social media. And, you know, that is evident by what we were talking talking about um, just barely with how Facebook back in 2011 was absolutely incredible for business. But for now, it's, it sucks. Yeah. And so, yeah. so no, this is this is a really, really great uh, uh, question. So just so you know, disclaimer, yeah, the information I'm giving to you right now is relevant to April 9th, 2019. And so if you're listening to this in the future, this may or may not be relevant to you. That's just the way social media works. But as far as today, what is the most important platform? And to that, I would give you Gary V's answer, which is the 79-21 rule, right? It's basically the 80-20 rule. We've heard that. Yeah in every industry ever, but he likes to switch it up and call it the 79-21 rule, where it's like you focused 79% of your social media efforts into one platform, the most vibrant platform at the time, and then 21% into other ones that may blow up or that are still semi-relevant. So to give you an example, to, to kind of, I know it's kind of a really long way to get to the answer, but the answer for you in your instance right now, I would say is Instagram. Instagram is the most important right now. Instagram right now, in, in my current opinion, is where you should be spending 79% of the time. And the things that you could be doing there, we're going to get into growth strategies here in just a second. That's the other part of your, your, your question that you want to ask. But that, you know, you'd be focusing on DMing people, running Instagram ads, um, posting consistently, tagging people, uh, doing collabor collaborative things on Instagram, like Instagram, in, Instagram live collaborations, so on and so forth, right? Yeah, yeah. But then you'd be spending 21 21% of your time on things like Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and so on and so forth. So you're yeah. still there. You're still relevant on those platforms. But right now, as a professional, I am encouraging you to spend the vast majority that like four fifths of your time on Instagram. Okay. Mm, yes, I agree. Okay. The, the reason why is, and this is kind of like, it's kind of paradoxical that I say that in a way. And the reason why is because to this day, Instagram is not the biggest social media. Do you know what the biggest social media is? Still Facebook probably. Facebook, 110%. As, as of today, um, Instagram has about 1.2 billion monthly users where Facebook has over 2 billion, right? They almost have double of what Instagram has. But the organic reach that comes from Instagram and the fact of how fast it's growing and the fact that our demographic is on there is evidence enough that yes, this is where we need to be spending time. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. But as long as you got that other 21% in your back pocket, if Instagram dies for whatever, you know, if it does full, pull a Facebook and, you know, it's the biggest in the world and then overnight it just seems to, you know, become a graveyard, that's okay because you are in the other places. What if Twitter blows up and becomes the new Instagram? Well, you already have an established base. You know, we have a lot of people that put all their effort into Facebook 
but then Facebook died and they had they didn't put any stock into Instagram and now they're restarting. You see what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So did that answer your question about which platforms we should be focusing yeah, on? Definitely, yeah. So now let's move on to the second part of the question. The second part of the question is what can we do today to grow or what are the best best methods, best tactics, uh, best executions to be growing the on social media, right? That is the next question. Mm-hmm, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that would be interesting. It's important to note that there is a lot of different methods. There's a ton of different methods and there's still to this day a multitude of methods that I don't even know about that people are doing. It blows me away whenever I watch, you know, on, when I get on YouTube and I type in, you know, methods of growing on Instagram or how to grow, you know, a thousand followers on Instagram in a month or what, whatever the the concept is, right? What absolutely blows me away is that when I watch those videos, they're either one saying all the exact same things, which is post consistently or geotag or right. And talking about algorithms and stuff. Exactly. They're always the same or they're saying things that are so left field, so weird, right? It's There's never like the things that's like, wow, this is new and this makes sense. Exactly. It's always like yeah. either the yeah. same or like, I'm not going to, no, I'm not going to do, that sounds stupid. Anyways, so the, the methods that I would say right now that hopefully the methods that I'm going to say to you are not in that, in that category of, come on, Wyatt, I've already heard that on like 50 different Instagram videos. And just, you know, if someone really has no idea what those things are, they're just completely oblivious to what those things are. I'll knock them out for you right now. Number one, post consistently. Number two, tag people that you're, that you're working with. Number three, geotag. Number four, hashtag. Number five, post on your stories. Number six, DM people. Those are like the basic things, right? Those are like the most basic of the basics, right? Mm -hmm. Cool. So now let's talk about the more, the more effective things that people don't know about. So number one on this new list is how often do you go live, Dennis? Oh, live for example is something that I just did the first time recently, like two or three weeks ago for the first time ever on Instagram. On on Facebook, I've done it many times, but uh, Instagram, for some reason, I never did it. And first time was like three weeks ago. Okay, cool, cool. So on Instagram with going live, it's absolutely beautiful. It's the same concept, you know, going live is not going to die out. That's the thing that's going to transcend social media. It's going to be go, it's going to go forever. You, your super fans absolutely love it. And going live is absolutely amazing for converting fans into super fans or converting cold traffic into fans. But the the topic that I want to talk about is collaborative live. So for example, I'm not going to do it right now, but what we could do is I could go live on my Instagram right now and I could invite you and we could collaborate on a, what's called, where like it's your Instagram page and my Instagram page that are going live together. Yeah. And it promotes, mm-hmm. it promotes to your, to your fans and to my fans simultaneously. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, that, I, I know this and, and I've never done it yet, but it would be a cool thing to do for sure. Yeah. It's, it's kind of the equivalent of, you know, you play back to back with Alesso or with Tiesto. It's kind of the digital equivalent of that. And the reason why that's so beneficial is because because your demographic and their demographic are so similar. There's a lot of crossover, but there's still a lot of people that don't know about you that is within their demographic. That's basically just like pouring gasoline on the fire, man. You know what I mean? Like, and so that would be like me going live with seamless. So collaborative live, that's the first thing that I want you to try, right? Whenever you release the next song with the buddy and he's, you know, they're in and they're within the same demographic as you, like on the day of the release, 
I don't see any reason why you shouldn't go live for like 20 minutes and you do a collaborative live and you just talk about the song. That makes sense? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It's always a bit tricky with when it's the top guys and then to get them on something like this is, you know, super busy schedule. So you have to kind of like plan it in advance. But it, yeah, it should be possible. And I, I see I see your point. Yeah, it's definitely something I should keep in mind. Another thing that I want to talk about that no one talks about, and if they do talk about it, they have no idea what they're talking about is using Instagram ads to grow your uh, to grow your social medias. Um, have you ever used Instagram ads before to grow your to grow your Instagram? Uh, how do you mean that? Like yeah, uh-huh, exactly. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so the, what I mean by that is, um, have you ever have you ever ran an Instagram ad before? No. Uh, have you ever ran a Facebook ad before? You mean those those normal ads that the, these like when you when you create the ad campaigns? Do you mean that or or? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yep. Yeah. What, well, what I do. I've never done this myself, but my, my, you know, my management team, they, 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 uh, definitely, yeah, they, they take care of that stuff and they have set that up many times on Facebook. Yeah. On Instagram, I don't know. Maybe they have done that too, but I'm not sure, to be honest. Maybe I'm speaking directly to your management right now, which is totally fine because you need to know it as well. But if they are not utilizing Facebook advertising, they need to. They absolutely 110% need to. In fact, I would say they would need to more than Facebook. And here's why. Again, it's the same it's the same ideas, or sorry, it's the same concepts that I brought up before that our demographic is on Instagram. It's the most popular. You need to be spending 80% of your time there, which means 80% of your ad budget needs to be going to Instagram. Okay. Let us, let's talk about a specific strategy that you could use for Instagram and using the ads. Um, right now, the ads that I see the most return on that I deem the most successful are story ads, right? You, we, we all, you, you've seen story ads before, right? Yes, of course. Yeah. So for those listening who don't know what that is, basically, you know what Instagram stories are. You click on it, you're looking, you're looking at, you know, whoever's story of them cooking breakfast in the morning or whatever. And then when that story ends, it brings you to an ad and it says something to the extent of, if you want this free duck, swipe up. It's whatever the ad is at the time. But the, the way that you would use it is in two different ways for an artist. Number one is if it, you are if you're sending an ad out to fans that already know you and love you, or two, if you're trying to get new fans, if you're trying to to grow your your fan base, right? So it kind of sounds like in this situation, we want to gain new fans, right? You want it, you want to you want to see growth. You want new people coming into your new ecosystem, right? Mm-hmm. Cool. So in that case, basically what I would do is, well, let me first let me first tell you what not to do. Yeah. What, what not to do is to create an Instagram story that says, "Hey, listen to my new song. Swipe up." That is the worst thing to do. <laughs> that that right there, Dennis, is the equivalent of what we were talking about earlier when I said, "Yeah, here's my USB stick." Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Same concept. It's the worst thing in the world to do. So, but what is a really great thing to do is to let's say, uh, what's the what's the last song that you released with uh, with a big person that you collaborated with? Uh, Nikki Romero last year. Perfect. That is a great example. There's this is a great example. I'm gonna give you the. I'm gonna tell you exactly 
what you can do, all right? And I can promise that it's going to convert. You would make a video. You don't even have to show your face if you don't want to. It could literally just be a, a, what's called a screen recording of Spotify and your voice on it. Like it could be super simple. Yeah, but yeah. basically, um, but basically, what it's going to say is it's going to have your voice on it and it's going to say, if you love X song by Nicky Romero, then you would love our new collaboration. Uh, and then you say the song there and swipe up. Right. And it's basically that is saying because you're targeting the Nikki Romero audience, you already know they love Nikki Romero and you're saying, hey, I know you love Nikki Romero and we did a song together. Go ahead and swipe up and check it out. You see what I'm saying? When you, but when you set it up like this, then you have to make sure that you're targeting just that group, just the Nikki Romero fan base in that example. So you would set that up in the in, in, in the in the ads, right? Like in the in the correct in the group or yes, yes. So yeah, that would be in the I believe that'd be on the ad set level. Yeah. So you got your campaign, your ad set, and your ad. So on the ad set level, when you're saying, hey, who are the people I want to I want to uh, target? You know, you would you would go and you would target people that like Nikki Romero. Okay. So yes, this specific instance is that you're hyper targeting them, and that is something. Whenever you set up an ad, um, Dennis, is that you must be extremely hyper targeted. That is where you're going to see the best results. Okay. Because all of a sudden, you know, do, do you understand the concept of hyper targeting and why it's and why it's important? You mean by that? Do you mean like being very specific about the target yes. group and trying to? Yes. Okay. Being okay as specific as possible, not keeping it broad and wide. The reason why is this, is that whenever we're running ads or we're marketing or we're doing anything of that sort when it comes to music or really anything at all, it's all a game of chance, right? It, we're all like, we're all gambling at this point, right? Because we don't know if we put out this ad, if it's going to get people to react. We don't know if they're going to buy our product. We don't know if they're going to listen to our song, right? It's all a game of chance, right? It's, we're just gambling. And so what we do at that point is say, okay, Where's the best chance? Where's the highest probability that this thing is going to convert, right? And so when you hyper target, that's where you get the highest probability. And I give this example all the time and I'm gonna give it to you right now. You know, if I was promoting your music, if I and I was giving two different opportunities, opportunity number one was that I would be able to market to five million senior citizens, and then the other uh, opportunity would be that I could market to a thousand people that are super fans of Nicky Romero. I would take the thousand super fans every single time. And the, and you know, most people are like, but you get more reach over here. You get more reach over with the, with the 5 million reach doesn't matter if it's not targeted, right? The big number. Yeah. The big numbers do not matter unless it's to the highest thing, because the probability of senior citizens loving your music compared to the probability of super fans of Nicky Romero loving your music i mean dude that's night and day yeah you see what i'm saying yes yeah um so it means that it's also more expensive though to to target that group right if you like if you consider it as as um for you know how in terms of reach like how many people do you reach for one dollar of advertising costs so then it's more expensive to uh hyper target like the way you say it, but it still makes you just get more out of it. And it's it makes more sense. That's a really great question. And it's actually, it, it depends. It can be more expensive or it could not really where the expensive part of it comes from as of 2019, where, you know, like one ad set is more expensive than the other, or more reach or more cost per click or whatever you want to say. The reason why one of them is more expensive than the other isn't necessarily because of, um, like, uh, uh it's not necessarily because you're 
targeting specific likes. It's more so where you're targeting them. For example, you know, if you target fans who absolutely love Nicky Romero in um, Austria, that's going to be way cheaper than if you target fans that are in the United States. And so, or in England or in Germany, it's more so where you're targeting them. Yeah. So as far as running the ad, I would do something like that. I would always make sure because you are presenting it to a new audience when you're running these ads, right? So it's, you're not always going to be running the ad for the Nikki Romero kind of thing. Maybe you collaborate with someone else. Maybe you're not collaborating with someone. Maybe you're just releasing a single or it's just you. It's all still the same concept is that number one, you're showing them how you can bring them value, right? In the, in the instance of the Nikki Romero ad, you're showing them how to bring them value. Hey, I know that Nikki Romero brings you value. So let me bring you more value by showing our collaboration. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so you're still yeah. bringing yeah. value to them. And so now let's say, you know, you're releasing a single and it's uh, what's called, it's not in collaboration with anyone. It's just you. It's just you. So what I would do in that instance would I would go and I would find other songs that sound like that song. Now, they don't have to be exactly, but at least within the same reasonable realm. And then what I would do is I would create an ad and say something to the effect of, hey, if you love X song by X person, then I can almost guarantee you're going to love this song. Swipe up and check it out now. And that's actually really rough. We could we could spit shine that and massage that a little bit more so that it's, you know, it's, it's a little bit more desirable. But the concept is still the same. Then in the Instagram ads, we would just target those people that you talked about that sounds like that song. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I see what you mean. Mm hmm cool man so when you do that that is and and of course like when they swipe up maybe you're sending them to spotify maybe you're sending them to youtube maybe you know it just kind of depends but a natural consequence of whenever this happens and i can testify of this is that the natural consequence is that you will get more followers on instagram because the vast majority of people before they swipe up they're actually just going to go click on your profile to see who you are first you yeah. see what i'm saying mm-hmm, mm-hmm. or or they're going to swipe up and listen and like you and then go follow you back on Instagram. So this is a natural consequence that has to happen. You know, is is this making sense? Yeah, yes, yeah, of course. Cool, Mm -hmm. perfect, man. All right, dude, I need to get going because I got to go help my family, but uh, did you have a good time? Uh, Yeah, man, that was great, really fun, really, really cool. One of the most fun interviews I've done in a long time, actually. Hey, Daw Nation, I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Behind the Daw with Dennis Koyu. And if you found anything in this episode that was really, really helpful for you, that really resonated with you, go ahead and take a screenshot right now and tag me on an Instagram story at in the Daw behind the Daw, and tell me what concept really, really helped you out this week. In fact, make sure to go and tag Dennis Koyu as well at Dennis Koyu. We want to hear from you and I can guarantee a personal response from me if you do so. Again, make sure to like, comment, subscribe, repost, follow, you know, whatever is appropriate on the particular platform that you're listening on, like iTunes, Spotify. Google Play, Deezer, YouTube, SoundCloud, wherever you're at, it doesn't matter. It just lets me know that we're moving in the direction that you need us to donation. But also donation, if you want private lessons in music production or social media marketing, guess what? There is a link in the description of this where we can set that up for you. Or you can just go to inthedaw.net and click on the private lessons tab. And finally, donation, if you want to take your sound design skills to a whole new level, then make sure to check out the AU5 and In The Daw course, The School of Bass. It has over 20 hours of videos showing extremely unique and advanced sound design techniques that AU5 and I have gathered over the last 
15 years. It also includes a ridiculously huge amount of effects racks, instrument racks, and project files. We also include a ton of bonuses like the MIDI arrangement templates of over 70 of 85 songs so that you can see how he arranged his most famous songs. We also give you a sound design journal template that comes loaded with over 45 different techniques. You get access to the private donation Facebook group and you get a personal 20 minute music strategy session with me. We originally priced out this course at $497, but we ultimately decided to go the subscription route and only charge $47 per month to access all of our content. There's no long-term commitment. You can cancel anytime. You can be a part of the school base for one month, two months, three months, six months, a year, however long you want, however long you need. It's completely in your control. And when you're done, you're done. That's it. There's no questions asked. However, we are going to keep updating the course every single month with more and more content. So I would highly encourage you to stick around. But if you're not much of a subscription guy, that's totally cool. We also have the lifetime access plan, which is where you pay $247 once and have lifetime access to all of our content and all of our future content for the school base. So donation, if all of this sounds amazingly interesting to you, head on over to courses.inthedaw.net. That is courses.inthedaw.net. And if you're still on the fence about all of this, no worries. You can take a free version of the school base. There's a link below for this or again you can go to courses.inthedaw.net and you can find it there as well but daw nation i hope you enjoyed this week's episode of behind the daw and if you did again let me know either in the comments or by tagging me in an instagram story at in the daw behind the daw but daw nation thank you so much and don't forget to make sure to spend time behind the daw so that you can crush it when you go in the daw